John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 743.MT1325, certificate number 27832. Are you gardener? I'm trying to think if your property, which has... Obviously, some bushes. It's got a little Seattle yard. But it doesn't... Do, do you ever... Have you ever gone through a phase where you're like, I'm going to keep this plant alive? Yeah. Uh, herb garden recently has been really my speed because a lot of those are perennials, which means you'll just have rosemary and mint forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's useful. Mm-hmm. You know, like fresh herbs are great and... You know, there's, you'd have to, I come from a time when you could not get fresh mint or cilantro if you wanted it. And you can now, make Moroccan whiskey. Is that what you need for Moroccan whiskey? Mm-hmm. Mint. Mint, mostly. Yeah. It's the number one ingredient? It's the only ingredient in Moroccan whiskey along with tea and sugar. May contain mint. It, does it taste <laughs> like the back of a stamp? It, it definitely tastes like the gum that four out of five dentists do not approve. <laughs> so I find that very satisfying. And I thought it was like, I, I gave my uh, wife all these... Um, little herbs to plant in the the box garden that was already in this house we bought. And she had no interest whatsoever. I mean, she liked using the herbs. She's a great cook. Yeah. She loved using the herbs, but like, I was the one who was like, Ooh, you know, I bet I could, I should trim back the rosemary. It looks like the, it looks like the marjoram is getting a little, not getting a lot of sun, <laughs> you know? So I turned into Mr. Gardner, but um, it was because it was a very small square footage. It was one of those box gardens that yeah. seems manageable to the to the newbie. You could look out and and in a in a single glance know how your stuff was doing. And you do you do get the I did start to get the I'm a I'm a good and valid person because my parsley is thriving and then mm-hmm. later I'm a failure because the last year the basil grew and this year it didn't, you know. Yeah. Uh boy, what a roller coaster that is. <laughs> oh, the emotional up and down. If the parsley's doing well but the basil isn't, what does that even mean? What does that mean? About my place in the universe. <laughs> Do you, I mean, that's a little different than the kind of, I mean, it's, it's the kind of landscaping you've been doing in your ravine is very satisfying because it looks different. Yeah. Does it, do you feel like it's, is it a kind of gardening? You're not, you don't get to eat the fruits of your labors. No, it is. And I've never been a vegetable gardener interested in it at all because I feel like so many of the things of like, 
early 21st century back to the land, uh, you know, backyard chicken coop in no, in none of those have I ever found, um, that the, that the produce is better than you can get at the supermarket or cheaper or more convenient. Right. Uh, I would like to work harder <laughs> for worse non-GMO zucchini. Because my old house, which I called the farm, had a bunch of fruit trees, cherry trees, apple trees, pear trees. But with with uh, those fruits, they all come ripe at the same exact moment. You have to harvest them frantically before the birds get them. The same moment. Yeah, they're just like I mean a cherry tree. A cherry tree is like and not ripe, not ripe, not ripe. Now they're all ripe. An entire tree, seventy bushels of of um, uh, rainier cherries all at once, and you 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 know you're fighting the birds. You get them down, and then you have more cherries than you could possibly eat. And two weeks later, they're all rotten. And it's and just all like, the diarrhea you got was for nothing because you didn't even oh, you the did, stomach cramps. You didn't even make a dent. And the pears and the apples, and it just feels like I can go to the store and get those things. And you know, and then and basically, what I discovered in spending time in Europe is that most of the fruit in Europe, at least, gets turned into brandy. Right, like all that's the, what stone fruit is for. All the plums, all the cherries, it all is brandy. Schnapps. It schnapps all the way down. And so, not drinking brandy, you know, like eighty percent of what I would have used all those pears for. Just make is, some applets, and to a lesser degree, cutlets. I don't like applets and cutlets. Is the other problem? I think you mean I don't like applets or cutlets. I don't like no applets and cutlets, which is a single product. TM. <laughs> but you, are you totally immune from the sense that? This cherry came from my own labors and therefore is more delicious than the Kroger cherry. No, I like that to a degree, but I was an avid gardener at the farm, um, but I was, I was uh, an English gardener. Like, I planted flowering bushes, trees, shrubberies. That's an English gardener? Shrubberies. You don't have to actually be English. Uh, yeah, an English garden is one of those where it's kind of like a riot. Of... It's a regular garden, but I'm not in touch with my emotions. <laughs> no, it's the other way around. Right, it's You're geometric form. Super in touch with your emotions. Wait, uh, is is it not the straight line thing? What is that called? No, I, it's not. It's not mannered so much. It's more. It looks English gardening is meant to look kind of natural. It's like the fake wilderness. Yeah, where you but but it's but there's a lot of um, there's a lot behind it, right? You you plant big leafed things in front and small leafed things in back to give depth. You put flowering this over, over waxy leafed that to create all this kind of dimension and color and things bloom at different times. Uh, but all of that was, you know, I was, I was planting in a yard or a garden. So you have a fence in the back to give you a border or you're making rooms in your yard, outdoor rooms. rooms. And, You're uh, the Village Green Preservation Society. It's exactly right. Uh, and it's very different from a Japanese or a French garden, I think. Um, but now at my at the new house, you know, I've been working in the ravine, which is a very – trying to restore a native habitat. But I'm about to get shut out of my own ravine by the county restoration crew. Oh, you've got the county coming in. They're coming in. They're going to plant a thousand new trees in my – uh, down in the ravine. Wow, nanny state. And now I'm excluded from messing around because they're like, we're taking over. It's a watershed. And although you own it, 
Are you getting a thousand free trees out of it? That's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, and all the labor. But they're like, for the next three years, you can't go down and monkey with anything. You have to leave it alone. And then after three years go by, we're going to leave, and then it's yours again. But you can't can move you, anything. Can, are you like fenced out, or you can go down there as long as you don't? Oh yeah, as no, long as you don't. It's uh, still, garden. I can, and I've told them like, I'm, here are the trails, here are the places that I'm going to be working. But they're like, okay. We're going to restore this habitat now according to our principles, and your principles are taking a back seat until we've established it. I would love that. It's pretty great. How come the city of Seattle won't come over and deadhead my roadies? Well, <laughs> I applied for this grant, and it was a couple of years that, uh, that have, I've invested in it. But now I'm, I'm newly focusing on the, other, the part of the yard that is just yard. And I want to turn it into a sort of Chinese garden, a, a very mannered and structured and formal space. Uh, are you going to make a Zen garden? Are you going to have a rake? I'm thinking, yes. But the, but the problem is I've realized it's over my head. I've read 50 books and studied it. And it's just, it's an art that I cannot... I can't grasp. No, I mean, the, <laughs> encompassing all the the, sure. the formal rules and understanding just spatially, just artistically. And the stakes are much higher for you trying it as a oh, white yeah. guy. Like if a Chinese guy tries to build a Chinese garden and, and it looks like, you part know, of it garbage. doesn't turn out great, he's then like, he's like, well. Well, you know, my dad was Italian. You know, so I'm only <laughs> half Chinese. So anyway, I called a landscape architect a couple of days ago that is an old friend of mine, a bass player that was in one of my early bands. And I was like, hey, will you come out and look at my yard? And, you know, what I'm looking for is a neo-Chinese garden, that's like a you, mid-century. That's you really trust a bassist. Right? If to you, come. If you're going to have him re-landscape your... <laughs> so he's like, yes, you know, I've studied this in college. Like, I'll come out. And so anyway, that's where I am with the garden. Pretty excited. Well, it sounds like you're not going to get produce out of it. Chinese gardens don't usually have uh, Chinese cabbage. Even the cherry trees don't make cherries. They make bok choy, confusingly. No, they they make beautiful leaves. Blossoms. Yeah, and blossoms. Um, to pivot just slightly, you know, in the in our lifetime, there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of back and forth, kind of kind of political back and forth uh, along the uh, nature versus nurture question when it comes to human nature, or human nurture, or human nurture. <laughs> As I call it. And uh, in the course of my lifetime, like I've, I've uh, lived through probably five or six different oscillations along the nature versus nurture corridor, kind of what, which one is the preferred version to back up some, some social engineering project, right? right? Some, some new view of what society should be. Yeah, some new form of education that, that uh, someone wants to introduce, a new set of essays that came out in... In um, the Atlantic, you know, everybody, it's, it's um, because nature versus nurture really undergirds a lot of our ideas. Everything Cri right. from criminal justice to, right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a real existential question. And the answer, by the way, yes. is, uh, I'm is nature. It's we were looking, nature. We were looking for what is nature. <laughs> I see. And, and so I feel like as a, I actually am a nature believer, mostly by virtue of being a parent. And that happened to me too. I think I, I, I read all the articles for decades and was like, hmm, nature versus nurture. Well, I have this to say. And then I had a kid and watched her be her own person 
completely resistant what, to what's craziest to raise two kids oh, right. and and assume you're doing everything more or less the same i mean i guess one is now in an ecosystem where there's a sibling yeah but except for that they are they it, drink the same water it's everything the same and yet they could not be more different sometimes <laughs> your children are very different and <laughs> yeah and, and they both have and they, we didn't put one in a weird skinner box i promise <laughs> they both exhibit characteristics that don't seem to resemble you or mindy they come out of the faucet like that yeah um, it may not surprise you that nature versus nurture has been uh, a political issue for many decades, mm-hmm. uh, a century at least in its current form. Um, and then all the way back to Herodotus in terms of the question of how... It gets into how accountable you are for your actions. Is it your fault? Is it your genes' fault? Is it your parents' fault? How, how do we address these things? My dad always wanted our genes to take credit for all of my accomplishments, but my own agency to be responsible for all my failings. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, that sounds about right. Yeah, he was pretty... He it's was nature when my parenting worked out. Well, he was it's, ready to slide in there and say like, oh, you know, your success as a musician is down to our good singing genes. And I was like, no, I practiced. I practiced the guitar. And he's like, yes, but because of your genes... I was like, no, no, I actually did this. Hasn't my dad actually come up to you once and been like, well, of course, you know, Ken gets all that from me. Yeah. Oh, he has for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like he did it before that show at Town Hall. He was just telling people he didn't know that. And I felt like I had to come in and explain, that odd man saying these things to you is my father. (laughs) Ken Jennings Sr. Which doesn't make it okay, but maybe makes the, provides some needed context. Ken Jennings OG. We have a tendency, I think, the shorthand, uh, uh, the shorthand version of Western genetics and biology kind of starts with Darwin, who we assume um, was a kind of Copernicus who came into a world where everyone was completely ignorant of genetics. He came into a creationist world and dropped this science bomb on a world that you know that believed that God made everything in seven days, and kind of like Copernicus. Um, Copernicus was not the first person to to um, understand the motion of heavenly bodies. Sure, heliocentrism. I actually don't know. Lots of ancient cultures. Well, yeah, I mean the the the. I'm going to say Asia to be on the safe side. Well, and the Arabs all had had uh, astronomy, like pretty sophisticated astronomy. Heliocentrism was some backsliding on the part of medieval Europe, um, but. Geocentrism was the backsliding. I'm sorry. Helocentrism is the good one. That's right. Geocentrism was backsliding. Ethnocentrism Heliocentrism is also bad. Yes. But for different reasons. But polyorthogenesis uh, is is the bad good one? Is that after uh, Peter Gabriel leaves? Yeah, no. But yeah, but before Phil Collins takes, uh, before he stops playing the drums. Polyorthogenesis is a Mike Rutherford-based band. Uh, we, The idea that traits were inheritable from the parents and that children were a, an admixture of their parents' qualities was understood back to ancient times. And there was a lot of... You can see why anecdotally. Yeah, that for kid, sure. That, that's curly hair. That, that, that baby looks just like his sister did as a baby. Even, even, you know, the, even the ultimate creationist could not deny that a child was some combination of the two parents in a way that felt like, sure, God did this, but out of a, out of a toy box of parts. And it's right? easy to see the mechanics of the, I mean, I actually don't know the answer to 
what was the last culture to figure out that's that sex made babies but i mean once you've made that leap i still think that's still conventional wisdom i thought you were gonna say that's still up in the air no, it's, but you're saying the last culture to believe that sex made babies. Sorry, the last culture to discover. Oh, to discover. I didn't it. want to say discover. I wanted to teach the uh, controversy. Uh-huh. The last culture to decide. There we go. That sex made babies. Uh, you know, because it's not it's not automatic. That that this sex that you're having would then produce a baby. I mean, it does take a while for the sure baby to. By the show time the up. baby is born, you've probably forgotten a lot of the specifics. But I imagine any time two tribes would collide in the in the world. Um, and there was, you know, girl stealing or rape as a component of it. Which was pretty common. Which was, I think, yeah, universally common in, when tribes collided. Uh, then the pregnant, the resulting pregnancy and the baby that shows traits that aren't commonplace ah, I see. in if, your own tribe. If there's different, if there's, if, uh, what's the word for when you can see it? Phylogenetic differences between yeah. the... Right, Tribes. a different hair color or a, or a different cant to the eye. Um, I think they would, the, the wise medicine That's not people, how they discovered it, surely. No, but it, but, but it would be further evidence, right? I mean, True. I think, I think you would, why, why does... It's a, pr- maybe it's like this person who uh, has never done that has also never had a kid, whereas these people who do have kids 100% have done that. That's right. That other thing we like. So all the way back and throughout time and throughout the Enlightenment, you know, and, and as science became more and more the lingua franca of the, of the knowledgeable uh, investigative set, uh, the question of what it is that, what it is in the parents that produces what we see in the child, how is that transmitted? was it continued to be a, a fascinating topic and there were tons and tons of theories about it all all wrong all, all well, <laughs> each worse than the next well predating darwin but what people didn't know was what genes were yeah and so including darwin right including I mean, darwin and and so the theory of he, he would have said dungarees he would have said yeah he would have said khakis because he was at <laughs> the officer tweeds class the um, the idea that there was something in a parent that was transmitted to the gamete, you know, it was understood that sperm and egg were the components that made a new child. Right. And how the information was transmitted through those small particles was the was the, Some, the subject sub- of inquiry. Something in that cell knows how to make new cells, every part of the body, but how? Right. And so the, the, the theory or the, the, I guess the doctrine of pangenesis, which was the idea that every part of the body had, uh, every part of the body produced little uh, analogs of itself. So your hand would actually create a little tiny bits that uh, bits of information handedness. that handedness that then went into your blood and then was somehow depo- got into your sperm or de- eggs deposited in the sperm so that a component of the sperm and egg had little elements of each part of your body that then when the two collided the uh, uh, 
they kind of fought it out. Who has the better hands? Who has the better hand shape part? Yeah. The better hand. Um, and uh, it was called, Darwin called it the, uh, they called it, uh, the, the little parts were called gemules and the little gemules. And this is the best that, you know, the best minds of their time. Um, and, and it predated Darwin by, by, um, many years, this, the sense that the body recreated itself out of components in a, in a world pre knowledge of genes, the, this, the, the sort of pangenesis was, was a, a universally accepted or, or largely accepted in the scientific community idea of how human babies were made. In hindsight, it seems like such a Rube Goldberg way for it to work. Like today we know that the sperm comes out of the box already knowing the blueprint before the hands even grew, you know, sperm had the blueprint. Right. The idea that every part of your body would have to, would grow. And then at that point, somehow tell your sperm how to make new ones. We, we now know to be an incredibly, uh, what inefficient way to do that. But when you see a child that has its father's nose and its mother's eyes, yeah, you're trying to make sense of that. And it just feels like, well, the eyes probably came down and then the nose came down and something blocked the mouth, I guess. And the, the kind of uh, not knowing what the, what the mechanism is and believing in a kind of uh, almost a magic of, um, and this was something pre an understanding of natural selection, a belief that components in nature had some agency that they strove to be expressed. The nose, your nose and the mother's nose would go down and each one, each nose would want to be the nose that won. And the idea that some things occurred were, were behavioral, right? Are we going to talk about Lamarck and that stuff? Well, so Lamarck uh, was a French theorist who wanted, uh, who had a kind of a universal theory of nature and um, biology. Well, la-di-da. And one of his kind of, uh, the thing that now he's most known for, but it's kind of a misrepresentation of, it wasn't a theory that he invented, nor was it a theory that he was especially invested in. Oh, interesting. He was just the kind of person that became the face of it during a, a later era when people were looking for a way to describe it. So at the time, Lamarck wasn't Lamarck a, a big was, Lamarckism guy. No, Lamarck was not like the only guy that that uh, that believed this, and he, he, he just had a larger theory and this notion that things that you learned in life or things that happened to you physically could be then transmitted to your progeny. Uh, like if you lost a, lost a finger sure. that the, the missing finger would not, that, that's a bad example. But like, if you were a, if you were a weightlifter, if you built up, uh, built up your body that your children then would have strong bodies. If you were, your behavior could change your could genetic information change your ge genetic information, and then that would become true of your line. And animals, so that, you know, an, an animal that's trained to be mean could have a meaner offspring, have meaner children, and, and meaner children after that. And then it's a very different thing from Mendelian gene idea that if you breed mean dogs with mean dogs, you will end up getting a breed of mean dogs. 
that's very different from I trained this dog to be mean and its from grandchildren on, are mean. It'll have mean dogs, yeah. Right. And so what we call Lamarckism is kind of, an, it's unfortunate for Lamarck. Eh, he'll be fine. But this was, you know, this was a, the, the, a kind of fashionable way of thinking at the time. And again, it's trying to, trying to understand how, how children express uh, their, uh, who their parents were. And I think it's natural to want to understand as you see, as you see evidence of natural selection in the world pre an understanding of it or pre the theory of it, you want to feel like beings change that, that as a, as an animal uh, confronts its circumstances and adapts to it, that those adaptations necessarily are then transmitted. And you want it for yourself, right? You want to think that you have some agency or that your decisions affect what the way your offspring emerge. I think it's a big part of it, but also natural selection is so hard to grasp. And it's much easier to say a giraffe has a long neck because a, a long ago, a giraffe wanted to reach higher leaves so it stretched and it stretched up. its neck. And then its children had long necks and they stretched their necks and, and their children had long. Cause necks. natural selection is just invisible and incomprehensible on the micro scale. Right. You know, you really need to, you know, hundreds of generations to even kind of imagine how that would work. Well, in thinking of all the, all the giraffes that, died along the way the giraffes that developed long yeah history is written know. by the winners man yeah. giraffe history is written by the winners <laughs> and the fact that giraffes have long blue tongues and big big eyelashes you know the eyelashes aren't necessary to get the you know the top leaves think of all the short eyelashed giraffes yeah lamarck that didn't make it but natural selection explains that perfectly but the, it's the long eyelashes make them sexier oh, they and so they so have sexy. more giraffe calves god they are sexy <sighs> but but natural selection, you know, and, and so we also have a tendency to think that Darwin, in proposing his theory of natural selection, also understood genes. And Darwin did not. He proposed natural selection, but actually believed in pangenesis. Like at the micro scale, he had no idea what was happening, even if he was right about the, the macro. Right. And he was at, he was not at all... Um, anti Lamarck or anti the idea that that changes in a parent could be transmitted to um, to its offspring, and so after nat- after the um, after the Origin of the Species was published, there was and 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 this is all compressed in our. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of future links who are biology PhDs who are rolling their giant eyelashes at us right now. They're but so annoying. I think for They're composing <laughs> emails. For most lay people, uh all of this timeline is very compressed. But in the second half of the nineteenth century, because Origin of the Species was published in around 1860, um for the for the rest of the nineteenth century, although natural selection was was generally accepted by the scientific community, the the mechanisms of uh of genetics were still hotly debated and pangenesis was widely accepted as, as not incompatible with natural selection, right? The two went hand in hand and they worked perfectly well. What's crazy is that Mendel 
this little monk who loved growing peas. Tending his peas. He was, he was like you, a guy with a little truck garden of peas, but he had... Uh, he Lots had of a, free time, but for different reasons. A lot of free time. And a real scientific bent. Uh, Mendel grew like 5,000 peas and had this enormous sample and was, because, you know, peas are pretty simple, and he was very good about keeping kind of, you know, the traits that he was breeding these peas for, kept them very discreet from one another, kept them very um, sort of clearly bipolar, I guess you would say. Like he wasn't trying to... He kept, he kept good data of this or that. He really did. This he started or that. out as a guy that just wanted to eat peas. He loved peas. Man, I could go for some peas right now. And then he was like, these are white peas. These are purple peas. I mean, the flowers. What's, what's going on what's here? up? Why don't I keep growing these peas and cross-breeding them and see what happens? Mendel had his theory of, uh, of you know, genes. What we now think of as genetics. What, what we now think of genetics. And published it in about the same time as The Origin of the Species. But he was uh, little known, and his theories were not widely disseminated. People didn't seize on his Mendelian discoveries, uh, and his science was kind of lost. Well, that's the problem with living in a monastery. Like, how's mm, word going to get out? Thank you. He just tells some, some kids delivering stuff from the village, and he's like, hey— uh, boy, boy. Uh, you there, boy. You there, what day boy. Is it? What day is it? Are you interested in the colors of my pea flowers? And you know what? If a monk asks you that, you you take off. You run. Run for the hills. He did publish, though. Um, you know, just like you and I were already in this bunker. But wasn't it in like the monastery newsletter? Yeah, like, monastery newsletter. They put newsletter. pages in the, in the elevator. <laughs> he went and hammered his theses on the on the door of his own monastery. And the, the, we can't uh, get out. Who put this here? The monk was like, come on. You do it on the outside of the door, <laughs> not on the inside. So for the second half of the 19th century, all the best minds were still kind of trying to figure out uh, what we're still trying to figure out genetics. The mechanism. And although accepting natural selection, um, still with pretty pretty wild and in a lot of cases Lamarckian theories about how creatures actually reproduced and how natural selection actually worked on a micro scale, as you say. Like on a macro scale, it kind of makes l less difference but on a micro scale, it makes all the difference. Right. Why are there all these different beaks on these birds? You know, is it because the bird that succeeds passes his genes intentionally onto his children? Do you think they had a? Um, do you think they they had an idea of you know if we understand the mechanism, then we can start to do Frankenstein stuff? Like was it that early? Well, yeah, and and a lot of it goes along with, yeah, a lot of it goes along with other notions during this. The, this the 19th century of education and um, social, the, a lot of the social change. Like now that we're educating a new generation of workers, they're going to produce smarter offspring. But also a lot of theory about uh, about the way the natural world works. I mean, and this continued into the mid 20th century. If you think about the Dust Bowl in the United States, a lot of that is a product of a kind of pseudoscience that believed that if you plant, um, if you plant crops in what was formerly a grassland, those crops will 
by their own uh, by their own kind of generation will change the atmosphere of the Great Plains and make it into a, a place where the rain falls. Because well, they, they kind of changed the atmosphere of the Great Plains, but <laughs> not in the right way. Not in the way that they thought. They I made mean, it more erosion prone. Yeah, what it was the it was the working of the grassland. You know, it wasn't the plants themselves. It was the they thought the plants would affect the weather. They did. See, I can see. I, I would have told them. I mean, it's easy to say now in hindsight, but if I'd been there, I would have been like, buddy, that's just that's just a it's a grass. But this was it's somewhat the th- These were commonplace ideas that you could. It's probably the farmer's almanac. It Chapter was. one, the grass affects the weather, as Be- we all know. Because the idea was that plants wanted something, you know, that things in nature have ambition and goal to, right. to, to have progeny and to be successful. We know from the omnibus that Stevie Wonder believed this as late as the 70s, <laughs> when Plantasia was recorded. Mm-hmm. Ken, how's your hair? My hair feels great. It's actually it's pretty full and and uh, f- and fluffy. I don't want to brag. They stopped having to fill in the back of my head with on, spray foam. Yeah, there's kind of there's like a th- you know because like harsh TV lights really yeah. make people look balder than they are. Sometimes they have been filling in the back of my head, and they don't have to anymore. They don't have to. I mean, it, you know the the degree to which a full head of hair is part of uh, you know a kind of masculine identity you are in a in a position where millions of people see well millions uh some number of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people no, see <laughs> see you every week uh hosting the jeopardy program and you don't want to look like um less than the full amount of fluff the problem with our um cultural obsession with hair and baldness is that like literally two out of three guys the majority of men will experience some kind of male pattern baldness in their mid thirties, yeah. you know, by the time they're 35. Right. And then it just goes up from there. So it's not like it's a, a, a rare or severe or stigmatized problem. It shouldn't be. It happens to almost everybody. And it used to be, if you wanted to get, um, like an, uh, a hair loss preventing medicine, you had to go to a doctor, right? Yeah. You'd have to get a prescription. Sometimes you'd have to use a name brand. And uh, a lot of them aren't FDA approved. Yes, there's two FDA-approved ones, and the great thing is you, you can get both of them uh, cheaper and easier with Keeps, uh, an online service for ordering, for prescribing and ordering, uh, and then continuing to receive uh, FDA-approved hair loss medication. Oh, so it still is a prescription in order to, to get the one of the two FDA-approved If you want ones. the prescribed one, yeah, you can get the prescription online. Um, you don't have to visit a doctor. Uh, you'll get a cheaper generic, so you're going to save a ton of money. And it's really important to do it when you think you might be in the early stages because, you know, the best thing you can do is maintain. I mean, there may be some regrowth, but the great, the great thing is you can keep what you have now. I remember when you had less hair, and it's sort of phenomenal that it's worked. And look at your hair now. Uh, Seemed like well, you, you. you look like a little badger. That's what I asked for. Uh-huh. I went to my doctor because, uh, you know, this is before I knew about keeps. And I said, what do you have that will make me look like a little badger? He said, doctor, Mr. MD. So if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, what do you do? Go to keeps, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus. And if you use that code, you'll get your first month of treatment for free. You're saying K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus to get your first month free? K-E-E-P-S dot com 
slash omnibus. It wasn't until Mendel was rediscovered, and he was only rediscovered in 1900. There was probably like a Netflix series or something. There were, there were scientists at work who kind of independently started to arrive at this sense of like, now, wait a minute, our own, our own uh, experiments kind of seem to indicate that there's that, uh, that rather than gemules, there really is a, a, an identifiable gene. And when they went and read in the, in the libraries, they discovered Mendel. And this kind of happened, um, independently, three different scientists, Hugo de Vries, um, Eric von Tischermark and Carl Korins all independently discovered Mendel around the same time and started to publish. And Mendel sadly probably was already gone, right? Died in the 1880s. Yeah. Mendel never, never lived to see him become the father of, of genetics. But boy, did he get to eat some good peas. Well, and you know, and he, he died happy. Of course he doesn't have a lot of children being a monk. Being a monk. So there aren't all those, you know, 20th century Mendels that were like living high on the hog, high on the pea hog. Or we're trying we to say, or we're trying to, you know, recapture all the fame once their dad's, you know, republishing all their dad's work. Right. There's no baby Mendels. And Darwin also died in the 1880s. So he never lived to see his theories uh, get synthesized with Mendelian genetics. This all happened in the early 20th century. And it was highly controversial. There were a lot of other ideas still in play, and there hadn't been enough Fortunately, Mendel was such a rigorous scientist that it was hard to argue with his conclusions. He had math. But he was also dealing with peas. And there were a lot of scientists that said, well, that might apply to peas. But when it comes to a complicated system, uh, like a human being. You it's know, funny that they still have the we are special illusion. Oh, you know, absolutely. Even if the religion has faded out of it, they're still like, well, I feel more special than a pea. Therefore, I mean, the, there were still um, a lot of this stuff was still kind of in play in our lifetimes. And it's hard to, it's hard to look back and, and remember that there were still papers being published in the 1970s that advanced the idea of, of how genes work. And we take it all so for granted now. Well, enter into this story at long last, the Russian revolution. And, you know, I, I basically look for topics that allow me to say the word Soviet, and here's another one. Uh, you probably have said Soviet on the show more than I've said Soviet. Yeah, that it's it's part of the omnibus canon. You should immediately stop ever trying to say Soviet again. No, I just don't. I don't do a lot of Russian themed shows. I think, mm. like maybe I do a show about the what the second in command aboard the Red October who likes to live in Wyoming or, or Montana. I, I would do a show about that guy. I was a Russian lit minor in college. And that's why I think I always, I always come back I to. I forgot you were a Russian lit minor. Yeah. Does that mean you understand Chekhov? Cause I don't understand Chekhov. Let me explain it to you offline. Okay. Well, you know what you and I should do? We should just sit and read Chekhov together out loud. I feel like I get Dostoevsky. Yeah, but, sure. I, but I don't get Chekhov. Well, it's very, it's you know, it's he, it's heady stuff. It's you very, actually have to do it with Russian. A you have independent to be in, theater. You have company. to be taking a troika to your dacha. Yeah, to, and, <laughs> with, with a samovar in the blanket on your knees to understand Chekhov. Well, what's interesting about all of this is it's all coming together and it's being promoted by by various you know uh, scientists adopt these various 
synthesizes synthesis synthesize synthesizes These various synthesizers uh and and start to kind of promote you know the the idea that this all um that, that there's a grand unification theory but over in the soviet union which is a country that's that you know right after the revolution and lenin takes over and uh, th- one of the first things they try to do is collectivize the farms and create a new model for uh, for economics and for social structure. And the idea being that, in their defense, the old model did kind of suck. Well, sure, nobody wants to be a serf, sure. even if you're a freed serf. Well, but the serfs got freed all the way back. You they, know, they did, but you know, was it really much better? Well, I mean, you tell me. That's why we can't tax the rich. They won't free the serfs. But the new system was. Because it was ideologically superior, there was a lot of pressure on it to also be practically superior. Because otherwise, what was the revolution for? This is the problem. If crop yields go down, uh, even under the beauty of Marxism, 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 Leninisms. Yeah, it's a it's kind of a drag if you're. That's why I attach none of my philosophies to crop yields. (laughs) Like I have a lot of ideas, but in none of them do I promise twice as much millet. Yeah, it's well, you we see it all the time, right? Every ideology that produces some new social movement or some new government program, it's very uh, it's very tricky to to find really conclusive evidence that sure. it's produced the results you intended. If I get the policy I like and social trends actually go the other way, I just say, well, think how much worse it would have been if you hadn't done my preferred policy. Right, or that my Hard policy... Hard to prove that it wouldn't have been better. It, my, you, my policy can't be held account because the other side thwarted it at every turn. Exactly. In the case of the Soviet Union, collectivizing the farms did not work. It really de-incentivized the former serfs, the the um, the agriculture, the agricultural workers of the new Soviet Union. You got fat, lazy ex-serfs. Well, they had no reason to put their all into collectivized farming because there wasn't any individual reward. I mean, that right? is the thing about survival farming is you really gotta swing that scythe yeah whereas if you're working on behalf of the the collective you know there's a lot of opportunity to kind of shirk your responsibility plus it's probably just some dope from your village the collective's gonna be run by sergey and you always hated sergey well yeah and they're you know they're they're good farmers and bad right and uh, and treating everyone as equally good or bad isn't uh, maybe it didn't produce let's say in the early years of the soviet union Great crop yields. I'm starting to think this entry is not compatible with Marxism. Well, that was very embarrassing and not compatible with Marxism. And so there was a lot of energy directed to, uh, I mean, increased crop yields were like at the, I mean, it was at the very foundation of the, the evidence of it would be evidence of the superiority of it also might collapse the regime, a hungry peasant class, right? Right, right. I mean, there's a, there's, there's, there's every reason why you would want to grow uh, healthy, robust crops. Well, during this period, there was also uh, ideologically uh, a real preference to promote people within the Soviet hierarchy from the proletariat, right? The idea being that now there is a classless society. And so there's all this untapped knowledge and wisdom in that, that formerly was kept suppressed 
by this corrupt uh, aristocracy. aristocracy. And now all these people that would have been described as peasants from rural villages uh, are going to be are going to be promoted into positions of rank and power. That's probably true in some fields, but I'm guessing genetic biology is not one of them. Well, you might be surprised. Uh, you know, Stalin came from a rural uh, backwater. <laughs> and, he, and he was fantastic. And look what a good job he did. <laughs> we all know his name now. <laughs> so, you know, it's not just biology uh, that maybe, you know, like uneducated people from rural towns are not maybe the best ones to just thrust into positions of authority and power. And we're going to know here in the United States very quickly Maybe by 2024, when our government is run by... Madison Cawthorn. Yeah, right. I mean, in general, you would think, you know, the, the solution would be education, right. and then the next generation of these newly empowered people are able to be capable and... Oh, you mean the education would be transmitted to their children through their genetics? <laughs> exactly. That's what I mean. Well, enter into our story, uh, the namesake of this episode, Trofim Lysenko. Trofim uh, who was a illiterate uh, rural farm boy? I'm tired of this classism, John. Who cares if he's illiterate? <laughs> who was, who you know, who uh, I, I guess couldn't read until he was thirteen, but then self-educated. And um, does he and, actually seem to be gifted? Is he a is he a brightly shining star of the he was of rural Russia? He was very interested in agriculture and. You know, I think initially did not have big ambition to become uh, like a big wheel, but within his community, and he was born in in uh, eastern Ukraine, kind of the area that right now is under threat of Russian siege, mm-hmm. um, and was a child that came of age right around the revolution, and he was really interested in the in the science of the you know uh, the the burgeoning science of agriculture. And this is kind of new. We're, we're going to turn the post-industrial revolution. will turn the lens of science and the enlightenment onto crops and not just the superstitions of the rural. That's right. And, and, and Russia and early Soviet union was a place where a lot of the, some of the best science was happening in genetics and, uh, you know, uh, agriculture, but also, you know, all of the science around, um, biology. Uh, Russia was a was a leader. The labs in in Russia, you know, were sure. some of the best in the world. Look at Ivan Drago. Exactly. Look at him. It's fantastic. What he they was did. super strong. That guy was probably a weenie. Before. Think about what his kids were like. Well, because he married Grace Jones. Think about what their kids would be like. <laughs> He's got, are. They have her eyelashes for sure. <laughs> Very strong. So Lysenko started out trying to there was there there were famines uh, as a result of the failure of collective farming and there was also kind of like in all these famines uh, a couple of bad years where the, it was very cold and there wasn't a lot of snow to insulate the winter wheat and winter wheat is a, is a kind of a it it reappears throughout history because it's kind of a an interesting goes through an interesting process. Winter wheat gets planted in the in the fall and then through the winter the act of freezing the the plant, the seed mm-hmm. is necessary for the seed to undergo the its transformation to bloom early or you know to bloom early and to produce 
weed in the spring. It doesn't bloom in the winter. It doesn't bloom in the winter. But it sits in the ground over the winter, and the insulating snow somehow is necessary for a productive germination in the early spring, which gets you an extra crop. Then you can plant the summer wheat. That's right. Twice as much wheat. And winter wheat actually produces a different kind of wheat than spring wheat. It's it's actually a, a larger harvest, but the wheat is you know the is hard little hard kernels that are that are better for making bread and you know it's a different it produces a different kind of flour. But it has some advantages. It has a lot of advantages, um, and so Lysenko got interested in how you could how you could artificially manipulate the seed by by freezing it in a kind of laboratory setting and then plant it early in the spring rather than plant it in the winter so it didn't have the threat of freezing out and yet the idea you still have to do the same amount of work but you would just lose less crops you'd lose less crops and also that spring wheat would be a, a better quality of wheat you'd get that hard kernel you'd get that that wheat that was independent of weather. Yeah, that you would have a you'd, you'd have you'd a, have more control a over bigger the, crop, yeah. right? And his work on this, um, which he called, and he was the one that coined, actually coined the term that became the the term of um, the term of art in biology. He called this. He initially gave it a Russian name, but eventually gave it a Latin name, which is vernalization, which is still. What you describe, what you call this process of manipulating through cold and moisture the, the wheat the season cycle. seed to yeah to to change the to to fool the seed. You're making it sound like this might work if, it the, does. if there's a word for it today. Okay, it does. Um, so score one for Lysenko. Score one for Lysenko. And Lysenko being a being from the proletariat and being a new Soviet man. He was very adept at taking kind of this new science and going out to the collective farms and kind of galvanizing the farmers to believe, no, this is real. We're, you know, we're going to use Soviet ingenuity to make a new kind of, of collective farm and it's going to be, it's going to have bigger yields and better food. And he was very, very adept at kind of publicizing this, uh, this kind of new take on collectivism and getting the farmers back excited about farming in the, in the new Soviet style. And so he was a hero in Pravda. They wrote glowing articles about him and Stalin loved him. He's on stamps and on statues. He re- well, not initially, but he really was the, he was the personification that they were always looking for of someone from the, from the, the new school. Who peasantry was, who rose up. Yeah, who was going to make the who was going to not just make the Soviet Union successful, but also was going to prove that the ideology was true. And unfortunately, Lysenko did not have a uh, a broad education, and believed that this new kind of synthesis of Darwin and Mendel and the the idea of genes transmitting without uh, without proletariat in, uh, agency uh, and without the um, without pangenesis, uh, he believed that. Well, he didn't believe it. He didn't believe in modern genetic theory. He at all. didn't believe in genes. 
Uh, oh. He believed that this was a kind of capitalist decadent theory and that <laughs> those capitalists eating <laughs> eating so many peas that they come up with weird ideas well and it was that it was against socialism because you know socialism it's, it's counter-revolutionary to it, believe in genetics it is it, it was i don't understand and so he he promoted an alternative theory which was that the new Soviet grain uh, aspired to be better and wanted to cooperate. You know, he understood the competition of natural selection, but he also believed that natural that, that things in nature wanted to help one another because it wanted things wanted to grow and wanted to be better. Right, and so. Naturally, and one of the things he did was he encouraged farmers to plant seeds as close together as possible because so, so they can be full of collective spirit. That's right, because he believed <laughs> that the seeds would help each other uh, because they wanted to. I'm going to assume that doesn't work. Uh, that in fact, it's bad when the plants grow too close together. In fact, it is bad. And his theories did not long term produce. Good crops. He's like a Dunning Kruger guy who's like, well, if I figured out vernalization, I can do anything. Right, and unfortunately, by this point in time, the he had become he very quickly was promoted and promoted and promoted until he was the head. He was the director of genetics for the Soviet Academy of Science, and it was you know political appointments all the way because he um, because. His theories were, yeah, uh, you know, were compatible with the with Marxism. With Marxism, <laughs> there you go. Um, and what they in fact did was produce more famine. And of course, the famines of the 1930s, uh, the you know, the famines that produced what a lot of people in Ukraine call a genocide were a product of a lot of different things, including, you know, Stalin's sort of in, in, intentional desire to starve <laughs> the people he didn't like. Hence the, hence the genocide claim. Uh, right. Um, but a lot of that, a lot of that famine and death can be w without too much trouble tied to the policies of Lysenko, the agricultural ideas because he's he's the ultimate Peter Principle guy who had been promoted far beyond his expertise. But even in 1930s and 40s in the in Europe and in America, the kind of synthesis of natural selection and Mendelian genetics and population genetics that was all still ongoing in the scientific community. It was not settled and studies were it produced different results and there were a lot of theories in play in the West. It was increasingly understood that Lysenko was a, uh, was a fraud or a pseudoscientist. But of course those criticisms <laughs> right. uh, were not received very well in the Soviet Union. Well, they and, wouldn't have gotten to anyone. Right? Yeah, well, or, or, I mean, if you, if, if they, in the, in the global scientific community, that was just further evidence that, that uh, corrupt capitalism wanted to thwart the Soviet Union. And, 
incredibly, you can lose millions of people to famine and still believe in the ideology. Well, that, I mean, we're, well, right. we, we've lost 800,000 Americans and a lot of people still <laughs> believe in the, the COVID doesn't exist. So, so Lysenko remained in his position as a director of genetics all the way through the death of Stalin, through Khrushchev. Wow. Through the 1960s. At some point, do you think that even the higher-ups know that he's lousy as his job, but he's a powerful symbol and he's got his own apparatus in place and he's hard to... So like a good, like a good Soviet, he also loved to purge his critics. Oh, so any scientists that came out against him lost their tenure and often got disappeared. It's really, it really makes sense to purge your critics. I mean, speaking of natural selection. Boy, I wish I could purge my critics. It's just harder today. Your critics are more, you know, one's critics are more distributed than ever. That's right. That's right. I'm not, I'm not in a... Uh, I can't go to everyone's house uh, and stop them from posting about me. I don't just walk down a, a marble-floored hall with my click-clacky shoes on my way to your office <laughs> to throw you into a van. And tragically, and we've talked about Lysenko briefly on uh, Omnibus before, because... Lysenko's techniques, his uh, his whole theory of genetics, was subsequently adopted by Chairman Mao. That's where this came up before. In the late fifties, after you know, well after a time when uh, when the synthesis of natural selection and Mendelian genetics was widely understood in in the global scientific community and was increasingly you know the evidence was added to all the time with new research and expanded and you know we're still we're still adding to the story now as we said at the top of the episode the question of nature and nurture is still uh, in all the blogs and it's still a very ideological question depending on where you fall and what you hope to achieve you can have a you can write a very different position paper on uh, on the story, and as as people have said, it's very hard to do research across millions of years. Right. But it's also very hard to do research with. Yeah, you can't really do double blind studies on children. Right. What's the I mean, What's I, the macro genetics of just the people that we know around here? Right. You're as a parent, you see evidence. You know, like irrefutable evidence that your child is not... But that's for narrative purposes. Right. You know, I'd be framing that very different if somebody came to me and said, well, here's how cr the criminal justice system should work with that in mind. That's I, exactly I, right. I would probably say, ooh, now I don't like, love that framing. And kind of just like the last half of the 19th century, it's possible to hold conflicting views in your mind because ideologically you want one thing to be true and then, you know, experientially or scientifically you see another thing is true. And quite probably it's, you know, there is no answer. It's a, it's a complex mixture of both things depending on your turn. Well, yeah, but that's what they would have said in 1792 and, you know, increasingly, right. increasingly a lot of the things that they thought would never have an answer did and that were just, they're just new things that we need to Discern. You just need a monk raising thousands of children Thank you. and keeping some rigorous math. And that's what we will eventually do. Someday and monasteries <laughs> will be little uh, uh, matrix nurseries. No, the futurelings are just our peas. <laughs> Sitting in a bed, kicking their purple and yellow limbs. Unfortunately, Mao adopted Lysenkoism as a way of solving the collectivization of Chinese farms after the 
after the communist revolution there. And he should have known better. He's had 20 years to see the results. He should have known better, but you need a new system of agriculture that is consistent with Marxism. And if your if your agricultural system is inconsistent with Marxism, it's got to be the agricultural system that's wrong because Marxism isn't. Exactly. Can't be. And so the resulting famines uh, between 1959 and 1962 in China, which, um, you know, opinions differ. I like to teach both sides of the controversy. Between 15, it's a number of, yeah. 15 and 60 million people died of famine. I mean, either way. The- yeah, even if it's just 15 million, it's still like. Noteworthy. It's yeah, it's kind of a drag. I feel like that would that would that should come up on Mao's record. And well, uh, and it's on Lysenko's record because because it's uh it's much more directly attributable in China to um because Lysenkoism and collectivization happened simultaneously or you know, it was let, let's collectivize and then let's apply this new the new socially acceptable, I'm sorry, socialist acceptable theories of how Plants grow. Um, and Lysenko fell out of favor. At, when Khrushchev left office, there was a new, uh, you know, a reevaluation of, I mean, when, when Stalin died, there was a kind of liberalization, a Khrushchevization. He gave that speech. Yeah. But then after Khrushchev died in the mid-60s, there, there was a whole kind of reappraisal of the the first 50 years of the of the soviet experiment you could say some stuff you couldn't say while he was still alive and there was a lot of new uh a lot of scientists that said we're no longer being purged and we would like it in the record that lysenko was completely wrong and here's the global consensus on how genes work and so lysenko fell you know into a kind of somewhat disgraced condition he lost his job, but his statues were still in all the, you know, the science halls, uh, in all the universities. It's in some cases all the way through Gorbachev. Because it would be embarrassing. Yeah. To, he's the father of Soviet genetics. And he did vernalize some stuff. Vernal- I mean, you know, of all the people I can think of, he vernalized more things than anyone. I mean, anyone who vernalizes now has to, has to tip their hat, has to put a, a nickel in the can. The old first fertilizer. <laughs> has to pour one out for Lysenko. And that concludes Trophum Lysenko, entry 743.MT1325, certificate number 27832, in the omnibus. Now, as we always say, uh, you know, social media is the, is the plague and the genocide of our era. Oof. But... And, you know, at the time, we thought maybe it had some scientific validity. We thought it was compatible with Marxism. But as we know from being in the future... It, no. was, it was all bad. Irredeemable. Pseudoscience. It led to the comet hitting somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in our day, we were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick uh, on social media. You jointly could find the show at Omnibus Project. If you have uh, electronic mail available to you in your era, maybe our uh, mailbox is still not full. The Omnibus Project at gmail.com. Uh, we received physical items at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Hold on, I got some postcards. What do we have here? We have two confusing postcards from Churchill, Manitoba. 
that made no sense to me hmm. until I realized... Polar bears and what's the other one? Mm, just uh, the ugly uh, aerial view of Churchill, Manitoba. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm pro-Manitoba. It's an yeah, aerial view of the town of Churchill, and it took me a second to... I was, is this just some petroleum facility or... No, that's beautiful Churchill, Manitoba. I'm pro-Manitoba, but I should say, when they try to sell me a, a beanbag a, chair and then don't send it... That wasn't Churchill, though. That no, was Churchill's Winnipeg. Gonna, Churchill's going to have to bear bear some of the guilt, even uh, though they're up in whatever, Hudson Bay. You should do a cover of that I Hate Winnipeg song. Who, who's that by? Uh, new mm, pornographers? Weak, some Canadian <laughs> band, Weaker Thans, I think. Oh, you yeah. could do a new verse about their, uh, their beanbag-related... Failures. The reason I didn't understand this postcard is because it, it actually has to be read like this. <gasps> oh, weird. Crossing it's... the boundaries of the two cards. You have to put them together. It's like a... Uh... It's like a treasure map. Nice. This, this is what's going to tell me where the polar bears are. Uh, so thank you for sending us this puzzling set of postcards uh, with some ideas for Churchill-centric uh, omnibuses. Uh, who is this even from? Churchill is way up there. Record from the great I, I don't even see the name of the sender, but I would like to. I would are, like to credit him. Are the her. senders really from Churchill? I love that. I mean, they're up uh, uh, on the border of Nunavut. Oh no, he was he was on a rare train ride to Churchill, so it may be a Manitoban who uh, who is only headed to Churchill occasionally for work or or for the festive holiday spirit there. I feel like the train to Churchill is now a thing I need to take. We also got a postcard from somewhere even more remote from. Uh, beautiful Chile from Ramon, perhaps our only Chilean listener. Who knows? That can't be true. There ha- everyone that listens to this show in Chile, please write immediately. He uh, is apparently more of a fan of you because he says that both sides of this postcard, the seaplane stamp and the thong-wearing Chilean girl on the obverse, are obviously they more... They both seem directed to me. Here, why don't you hand More your speed. Yeah, you I'll never see that again. Ken doesn't want to see thongs. <laughs> and he doesn't care about airplanes. I do not believe Chilean girls' buttocks are compatible with Marxism. Oh, but uh, he does put a lobster person on here, and you, Ken, are the real uh, promoter of lobster people. Well, he, he donates at the, uh, the lobster person level. And you should, too, by the way. Support our Patreon and become a lobster person like Ramon. He's from Santiago. He's from the big city. Uh, Jelena, apparently from... Oh, this, this, wait a minute, this postcard is from Valparaiso. Sure. Which I, I've been there, and I looked at the cover of this, and I was like, I know this seaport. The only thing that wasn't true of it was there were no thong girls. It's just a... She looks, she appears to be, uh, possibly... Super Photoshopped in from possibly a, a better beach city than Valparaiso. It feels very much like a industrial port... In my experience, and yeah. not one with a ton of beaches. I have never been, but I just saw the Pablo Lorraine movie uh, set there, whose name I can't remember. Ama, I think. And it did not look like a fun, you know, it didn't look like a beautiful seaside getaway. It's Yeah, no, there are uh, funiculars. Oh, well, I've come around on Valparaiso. Yeah. There's a funicular in the movie. I just oh, remember. there you go. Uh, Jelena from Quebec, I believe, sent us... This postcard of the Soviet Pavilion from the 67 Expo. Hmm. Quebec, one of the remotest territories, remotest we, cities we, of, uh, of Canada. We do love a World's Fair. Well, that's from, it's Quebec, the province. That's Montreal, the city. I, I, watched, um, I watched the movie Arrival 
last night. Had you never seen it? No, I, I saw it and I liked it. So I thought I would watch it again. And I watched it with my 10 year old and she was like, well, she can't understand the ending. It's very, well, did she understand the twist ending? We talked about it quite a bit. I think it was a food for thought thing. The first third of the movie, she was, she was restless. Like this is boring. There are no lightsabers in this movie at all. You said this was a space movie. And then right in the middle, there's like a section where the movie explains itself pretty clearly. Mm -hmm. And then she was very invested in it. And then at the end, I think my sister had a harder time understanding the time, the, you know, the time Ouroboros. I think my kid actually kind of grokked it. But watching the movie, you're like, is this filmed on Bainbridge Island? Is this filmed in the Northwest? It kind of <laughs> suggests it is, but then you realize, no, it's filmed in Quebec. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Looks like America. I wish we uh, would throw I money mean, at film production the way there's so many Canadians Canadian right provinces now do. that are like, it is America. North America. Got them. Uh, Sharon is a listener who apparently just discovered I like Star Trek. I don't know why that was such a stretch. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with Star Trek. Which one? Mm. How do you feel about original Star Trek? I, I feel like that's the one of my childhood, but I'm more of a next generation guy, and then it kind of ends for me. How do you feel about original cast movies of the 80s? Oh, yeah, for sure. You're into those. Yeah, like pretty much all Star Trek characters should spend all their time going back to the 80s and having comic hijinks in yeah. San Francisco. How do you feel about the reboot where the young, handsome actors are playing the young versions of the old? I guess I liked it until they actors. started playing the Beastie Boys and they all knew they all knew, they all had like good Beastie Boys knowledge. Oh, because the, in Beastie the 23rd Boy, century. Beastie Boys were like the Beethoven. Yeah, it would really be like, you know, how well you or I could, uh, you know, you. I guess you and I could just blast some Donizetti or Monteverde or something. Nobody could stop us. No. It didn't seem all that Star Trek to me. Kill the wabbit. But Sharon sent me a copy of the Star Trek font pack from 1992, which you would use to put all the Star Trek fonts on your computer. The yellow one from the old TV show, but also the one from the movie, the first, the second and third movie credits. Maybe the first three movie credits. And there's a Klingon-looking font. There's the font that, like, the signs on the bulkheads would say, like, uh, oh yeah, like where it's you know it says "sick bay this way" or uh, oh these are cool. Squeeze yourself into my Jeffrey's tube. Do you have a way to put DVDs into your computer? I still do. I went to considerable effort to buy a laptop that still had an optical drive. You make fun of my of my PC all the time, but but how would you listen to a CD, John? What this isn't a listening CD. This is a this is a typefaces CD. Yeah, but you couldn't even pop it. You couldn't pop a disc of any kind. No, I think you know, as an Apple cultist, um, Apple has convinced me that I don't want those things. Ken, <laughs> you—they're not compatible with Marxism. <laughs> no, you might want them, if, but if that's... you want them, but if they're not in the computer, you must be wrong. It's I, exactly like Lysenkoism. I don't want them because I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to go up against the ghost of Steve Jobs. Thank you, Sharon. I uh, I love these true type Star Trek fonts already. Sharon notes that she had been a, a Patreon donor. Um, her business really took a pandemic hit and it's not in her budget, but she still appreciates the show. And we thank all those who have continued to support the Patreon through tough times and those who listen whose budgets uh, don't afford it. We, we do the show for you as well because, as we've said... That's compatible with Marxism. <laughs> We're super mad at you, though, if you could afford to support exactly. the Omnibus. Exactly. Look in the mirror right now. And you're like, ha ha, I'm getting it for free, narc, narc. 
and I think... Did I do everything? The male and... The female. That seems solid. And everything in between. You can look for the futurelings at, uh, on Facebook and Discord and whatnot just by searching for the word futurelings. Type it into Bing or, or ask Jeeves. Mm. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.